What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Welcome back to This One's a Doozy. I'm Kevin. And I'm Haley. We talk about stories of mystery, true crime, and folklore of the unusual, unsettling, and oftentimes unsavory goings-on of our world today, yesterday, and long ago. True. And here we are, episode number 15. 15. Whew. Every episode kind of feels like a milestone at this point. It really does. we're still going. So. We're going, I know. <laughs> not, not every podcast makes it this far. Usually you That's get true. in a few weeks, a couple months... You know, if you're every week, you like start kind of getting that, that fading feeling. Yeah. And, uh, not so that we haven't felt that fading feeling, but we're working ahead though. We are working ahead. We powered through it. Really. You're working ahead and I'm just barely keeping up with you, but yeah, that's props to you. (laughs) (laughs) It's fun though. It is fun. Well, first things first, what are you drinking? You know what? Tis the season. I'm drinking a pumpkin spice latte at 11.25 at night. Okay. And your preferred method of drinking coffee? Iced always. Every single time. Mm -hmm. I do like to have, whenever there's like a seasonal hot drink, I'll have one hot one, but it has to be on the right day. So I have not, we haven't had a cold overcast day yet, obviously Mm. because it's September. Right. But once we get one, I have to have a hot one. And it's the same in the winter too. I have to have one hot seasonal beverage. That's understandable. But otherwise I want my you want drink it iced, iced every time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All year long. That's how you do it. Mm-hmm. What are you I, drinking? I am drinking uh, an herbal. No, not an herbal tea. A fruit tea. Nice. Yep. Decaf. Smart. Because it's 1125. Yeah. <laughs> there are two types of people in the world. There are. There are. For so long, I was able to do that. And then, I don't know, I turned 30 or something and was unable to continue doing that or else it really messed me up. But I chose the flavor True Blueberry. Nice. Yeah. That sounds all, good. Yeah, to be all true blue. Always true blue. Always true blue. I feel like, what's that meme that's like me after drinking nine cups of coffee on an empty stomach? Why am I afraid? <laughs> <laughs> it's like my base zero mode. Really? So it's always I, a little afraid. <laughs> <laughs> That's honestly the right way to go into this podcast though. So, I mean, you know, mm-hmm. you do I'm what just you gotta preparing do. well. So. Yeah, exactly. Mm. <sighs> well, good stuff. well, 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 you got a feel good fact for us today, my dear. I do have a feel good fact for us today. So napping is actually good for your heart. A study published. You in can t- stop right there. That's all I needed to hear. 
That's, ex- that's excellent. <laughs> no, just sorry. I'm, I'm sorry. Keep going. <laughs> so a study published in 2019 by a journal called Heart found that people who took at least one to two naps a week were 48% less likely to suffer from a heart attack, stroke, or heart failure compared to people who took no naps at all. This study was a five-year study, and while they noted that correlation doesn't necessarily equal causation, a couple of naps a week could do your heart good. Hmm. So just go for it. Take that nap. Wow. I'm going to start taking naps every day. This is for my heart health. Yeah. That that way it'll... I, was, I hope it'll raise it even more. Like two naps gets you 48% less likely mm, to take Maybe four. seven naps a week <laughs> will get you 200% less likely. Yeah. Kevin only naps now. I just, that's that's what I do with my free time is napping. It's the only thing he does. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I liked that one. I was like, this is great news. That is excellent news. That is such a feel good fact. And we all needed to hear it. And yeah. now we all have a medical reason to say, I'm sorry. Uh, I need to take a nap. I've got to take a nap right now. So a fun nap story. <laughs> One time I I had a, a job at a place I will not mention the mm, name of. I love this story and so much. It's, it's not in my career field cu- currently. It was it never was before and it never will again, hopefully. And uh, what happened was I was given basically a supervisory kind of a role, which made made people less inclined to supervise me which was mm. a terrible idea. Yeah. How and, old were you? Uh, oh, 26. You 20, were 26? I think so. Oh my gosh. 25, okay, keep 26. Going. Yeah, I was given the supervisory role and I <laughs> I had a 15 minute break in the middle of my afternoon and I was like, okay, I'm exhausted today. I've got three more hours here. I'm going to go take a nap and I'll just shoot back up after my 15 minute nap and hop back into work. No That's big deal. That's always a good idea. Right. And once again, no one is paying attention to me at all because I'm the one in charge of everybody else. So I go into a break room where people regularly traffic that room. So there was no reason for me to even really get much more than just a couple of minutes anyway. Mm-hmm. And I fell asleep for one full hour <laughs> <laughs> on the clock. <laughs> and... uh Woke up, looked at my phone, was like, oh no. And I just very nonchalantly walked back to my desk and went back to work. And no one said anything about it ever. And Mm -hmm. I don't work there anymore. (laughs) It's been like four or five years since I worked there. It's funny because you give some people power and they get like mean or bossy. You give Kevin power and he sleeps on the clock. Yeah, I'm going to take a nap. (laughs) 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 Oh my goodness. Oh, that's a great story. You have another good nap story. That's for another that's day. That's for another day. That's that there's there's more elements to that one. Mm-hmm. But Kevin's story a, time soon. <laughs> it was a feel good fact. I wanted to bring our feel good fact full circle into yeah. a thing that everybody's done, right? Yeah, everybody's totally <laughs> everybody's done that. Totally done that. Yeah. All right. This intro's <laughs> gone on long enough. My oh, love, what do you right. have for us today? All right. So this week we're taking on a true crime case. So this week's story is as senseless as it is frustrating. Oh, no. Yeah. It's one of those stories that will have you asking, but why? Over and over. And unfortunately, we'll probably never have an answer as to why this particular case happened in the first place. This week, I'll be telling you the story about the murder of Annie Lay. Are you ready? I apparently am ready, but with that set up, okay, here we go. Yeah, I'm just preparing you. So this one is a doozy. 
Tuesday, September 8th, 2009, started out as it normally did for 24-year-old Annie Lay. Annie was a doctoral student at Yale University in New Haven, Connecticut, specifically in the Yale School of Medicine in the pharmacology department. So on the morning of September 8th, Annie left her apartment and took the Yale Transit to Sterling Hall of Medicine on the Yale campus. Around 10 a.m., security footage on campus captured video of Annie as she walked from Sterling Hall to the laboratories, where she spent her time studying the effects of various medications on mice. Hmm. The building was located at 10 Amistad Street, and Annie can clearly be seen on one of the building's 70 security cameras as she entered the building that morning. The day would continue on with students coming and going as usual, with one exception. Annie can't be seen leaving the building on any surveillance footage at any point of that day or night. Oh. Where was Annie? Like at all? The whole, at all. Oh my goodness, okay. Yes. So wow. Annie Lay was born July 3rd, 1985 in San Jose, California. She was a Vietnamese American and spent her childhood with her aunt and uncle. She was brilliant even in high school and was the valedictorian of her graduating class. She was also voted most likely to be the next Einstein. Oh, wow. Yeah. So as I said before, Annie was a doctoral student at Yale, so she was crushing it. Yeah. And super, super smart. Super smart. She'd graduated with her undergrad from Rochester University with $160,000 in scholarships. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. She had a major in cell developmental biology and a minor in medical anthropology. And her research was aimed at making advances in the treatment of conditions such as cancer and diabetes and all kinds of degenerative diseases. Wow. She really wanted to make a difference. She was pursuing her PhD in pharmacology and lended her expertise to others in many ways, including in an article that she wrote for Yale Medical School's B Magazine. Huh. The article was entitled Crime and Safety in New Haven, and it was published in February of 2009. She really cared a lot about the safety of students, specifically women, on campus. Nobody knows if Annie wrote this article solely because she cared about keeping women safe on campus or if she had personally been experiencing anything on campus that made her mm, feel unsafe. Yeah. She never told anyone if that was the case, but she did have a great routine of keeping in regular contact with her fiancé, Jonathan, so that her whereabouts were always known. She had a full course load and worked for long hours in the lab on her research. At the time of her disappearance, Annie was only five days away from getting married to the love of her life, oh. a man named Jonathan Wadoski. The pair were absolutely in love and so super cute. Annie and Jonathan met at the University of Rochester when they were both students there. Annie, though she was only four foot eleven, was lively hmm. and bubbly and outgoing, and Jonathan was sweet and more reserved. In 2008, the pair got engaged and began planning out their future together. Shortly after getting engaged, Annie had begun her doctorate degree. While Annie studied at Yale, Jonathan stayed behind in New York, where he attended Columbia University, which, like, oh, the wow. distance yeah. was hard for both of them. Yeah. But they spent weekends together during that time. They'd go on hikes or to baseball games together, just being young and having fun whenever they could. They were both looking forward to married life and, like, getting to finally yeah. be together. Yeah. So as the wedding day approached, Annie was busily and effectively juggling her schoolwork and solidifying all of the plans and details of the big day. The two were set to get married at Huntington Village in Long Island, New York, which is a little seaside town that's sort of known in the area for being super beautiful. And there are tons of weddings that take place there every summer yeah. and like into the fall. Yeah. 
Annie was described as being a perfectionist about the details, having things that she wanted to have perfect. Yeah. yeah. Like her hair and makeup and the details of the event at the venue, but she was not a bridezilla. People made sure to note that. <laughs> she was just particular and she knew what she needed to do to make all of the details of her dream wedding come true. As exciting as this season of life was for Annie, it was obviously very full and obviously very stressful. Yeah. So back to Tuesday, September 8th, 2009. Annie was busy at school doing her thing. But when Annie didn't return home to the apartment that she shared with her roommate and didn't communicate with her roommate if her plans had changed, this was definitely out of the norm for her. So it set alarm bells off in the head of her roommate. Mm. By 9 p.m. that night, her roommate had contacted the police to file a missing persons report. Missing persons reports at Yale are not usually treated with much urgency. Yale itself is a super secure campus with dozens upon dozens of cameras on campus, hmm. as well as buildings that require multiple measures to be taken for people to even be able to enter certain buildings and even specific rooms hmm. within certain buildings. Wow. Yeah. They were locked down. Yeah. There's a law enforcement presence on and near the campus, and the school itself is always bustling with loads of people that would likely notice something crazy like an abduction or an attack in broad daylight on a Tuesday. Right. <laughs> on top of that, with New Haven being so close to New York City, it wasn't uncommon for a student to hit the road for a quick trip to New York City and forget to tell anyone that they were doing it. <laughs> Those were the kinds of reports that police usually dealt with. So when Annie's roommate contacted them, they initially weren't worried, but this was super out of character for Annie. So right. the police actually decided to follow up. That's good. Yeah, for sure. In the earliest stages of the investigation, the initial assumption made by investigators was that maybe Annie was just completely overwhelmed with her workload at school. Graduate school is insanely demanding by itself, let alone graduate school at an Ivy League college right. while attempting to finalize the details of the wedding when your fiance lives out of state. Oh, and so yeah. does your entire family. Yeah. So they thought she's overwhelmed. She's probably just taking some time. We'll keep looking into it. But yeah, that's what they initially thought, which mm. like I kind of get that. But the way that my brain works, I always go to the worst right. possible thing <laughs> that could happen. Yeah. So anyway, maybe I would be a good investigator. <laughs> so once 24 hours had passed and nobody had yet heard from her, the level of concern grew. Her family absolutely didn't agree that Annie would just disappear on her own volition, despite what law enforcement considered to be the most likely scenario so mm -hmm. far. Police followed up with her loved ones, who she was in regular communication with, and discovered that her last known communication with them was when she was on her way to the research lab the day before. It's important to know that there would have been all kinds of people in the building with Annie that day. The building was frequented by other PhD students, doctors, scientists, lab techs, and so on. And since the lab she frequented contained valuable research and research materials, security was super tight in that building. Hmm. So in order to gain entry to the lab, you would need an access card issued by Yale to students and other professionals. The lab in particular was a room that many professionals and students would have access to, but it was considered to be one of the more protected areas. So not everyone that had an access card to the building would necessarily have a card that would permit them right. into that specific lab. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. Okay. When police initially went into the building, they noted that the door and walls surrounding the lab were made with a super thick material and that the room was locked down tight. 
so it would not be easy for a stranger to gain access. Mm, Okay. Due to the nature of this case, FBI actually got involved pretty early on. They began interviewing people that may have seen Annie on September 8th, but only managed to connect with one person who actually remembered seeing her. A lab tech that remembered seeing her said that he saw her just before 1 p.m. that day and that his conversation with her was just sort of casual and that nothing about Annie seemed off. Hmm. She didn't seem stressed or scared or paranoid or anything like that. It was just a regular old cordial conversation with a peer. Yeah. Police quickly began making appeals to the public. Immediately, this story became a media sensation, garnering attention from all kinds of people, first in the area, and then it went national. Hmm. Because, you know, you're looking at a bright, beautiful Ivy League doctor-to-be who went missing just days before her wedding. Yeah. This sort of thing doesn't happen every day, and Annie felt relatable to everyone who had heard that she'd gone missing. Unfortunately, with this story taking off in the media, some of her friends and family actually found out that she'd disappeared through various news outlets online. Oh, Which is so gut-wrenching. Oh. Like, the media got on it, like, super fast. Yeah. Such a bummer. So the search for Annie Lay continued. Investigators found Annie's wallet and cell phone. This definitely caused a shift in the focus of the investigators. Nobody, especially not someone who routinely communicated with her loved ones, would leave these things behind. The seriousness of the matter truly began setting in at this point. FBI investigators set up a command post on campus to help New Haven police with the investigation. Over 100 investigators, experts, evidence analysts, etc. would be on the case, with the primary focus being on Annie's last known location. Wow. The animal lab. So they had a lot of people, a lot of people zoomed in on this. They also needed to quickly rule out potential suspects, so investigators began with looking at Jonathan. Yeah. He came out and was interviewed. He cooperated with every step of the investigation. He produced a verifiable alibi, he passed a polygraph test, and he tried his best to be thorough and helpful. He was very quickly ruled out as a suspect. Yeah. This didn't narrow the investigation down much, though, considering that now they need to consider pretty much anyone who was on Yale's campus that day as a potential suspect. But thanks to the insane hmm. amount of cameras, both inside of the buildings and outside of many of them, they were able to piece together parts of Annie's day a little bit more clearly and they were able to determine that she had entered the lab on 10 Amistad Street just after 10 a.m. She had been wearing a green blouse, a brown skirt and shoes, and a brown beaded necklace. She was carrying something bulky, most likely books, Mm. in her arms. She was not seen leaving the building on any of the cameras, oddly enough. Which, it's great that they were able to determine that she'd entered the building and what she was wearing, but... Where the heck is she? Right, right. How is she missing if she never left the building? So while the Yale Animal Research Lab did have a ton of cameras situated outside of the building, they unfortunately didn't have any indoor cameras in the building at the time of Annie Lay's disappearance. Oh, no. The building was roughly two years old at the time. And even though it was decked out with state-of-the-art equipment, they didn't install indoor cameras. (sighs) Many people, myself included, Wonder why that is, all things considered. Mm-hmm. You know, it's an expensive building with valuable research. It's like super hard to get in and out of, right. but there's no cameras. Well, it's, it, I that mean, just I seems get like, it. I, I get it. Like you're trying to also keep w- with, with how valuable the research is that they're doing. Mm-hmm. They want to try to keep some things 
confidential and, you know, they're trying to be careful with how that shows up. But then also like on the flip side of that, it's kind of like, well, why wouldn't you want as much documented as possible then? Mm -hmm. So that in the event that someone does steal something or, Mm -hmm. you know, whatever you have it right there. So, Mm -hmm. oh, and I do also get it from the mindset of you have to have very specific access cards that are issued directly to you with your name on it in order to get in and, and it's locked down even tighter with certain other rooms in the building. Like I do get that, Mm -hmm. but dang it. I really wish they had cameras inside. Right. The next best thing I'm going to assume is that they're able to trace and track who goes into what rooms Mm -hmm. and all that. Okay. Yes. So maybe that. Okay. 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 Um, Good job. Yes. (laughs) Okay, so despite the lack of indoor cameras, police would be able to tap into a different security measure that was in place in the lab, the access cards. Yes. So you did nail it. I'm just going to over explain it now because you already explained it. (laughs) So like I said before, anyone who wanted access to the building needed one of these key cards in order to get inside. And the access cards are individually made for each card holder. Mm -hmm. They were able to track every swipe that Annie made with her card in the lab on the day she disappeared. They noticed that her card was swiped at the door to the lab in the Animal Research Center, but she never left. So I'll talk more about that Hmm. and what they found with the key card log later on. So they determined that she literally had to be in the building. It was this discovery that led investigators to sort of fully understand that they were dealing with something extremely serious. Mm-hmm. I feel like every little detail that they were able to kind of nail down revealed to them that this is like a really huge deal. Yeah. This is not a normal case. Yeah. Something crazy is happening here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So on September 10th, 2009, Yale would put up a $10,000 reward for information leading to finding Annie. Many theories wow. began to arise. Was Annie murdered? Was she abducted? Was she injured or lost somehow? So they began interviewing Yale employees that were in the building, and they continued interviewing Annie's friends and family as well. Other investigators kept moving by digging as deeply as they could into Annie's personal life, looking for anything that might give them a clue as to what could have happened to her or where she could be. Some of the investigators wondered if maybe there was still some sort of connection between Annie's disappearance and her upcoming wedding that was set to take place now mm. in only three days time. Did she have an ex that might not be over her that showed up maybe? Oh, wow. That'd so be they, crazy. They literally turned over as many stones as they could, but they found nothing. Jeez. So on day three, Connecticut state police came in to process the lab. They treated it as a crime scene. Mm-hmm. It was during this part of the investigation that they discovered that around noon, Tons of people could be seen on the footage leaving that building, but it wasn't normal for everyone to leave at that time for lunch or anything. Hmm. There were also no campus-wide events or anything like that. So it's here that they figured out that somebody had pulled the fire alarm, alerting students in the building to exit, which they did. Mm, Oh, no. Yeah. They study the footage to see if maybe Annie could be seen on any of the different cameras that were focused on the various exits of the buildings, Uh like maybe leaving with groups as they exited. They combed over all of the cameras to see if they could see her or maybe if someone had snatched her up during this time, but they still couldn't find her. So then a new theory came to light. This is a nightmare scenario, 
but it came to one of the investigators to consider that maybe someone had grabbed Annie and thrown her into one of those large trash receptacles in the lab that would then be disposed of elsewhere. Oh, no. They yeah. found out that there were four regular trash streams, which is a fun two-word phrase, <laughs> trash stream, yeah. with things like animal waste, trash, recyclables, carcasses, and that each of these streams end up at a sort of station on campus where trash and biohazard stuff would get incinerated. Oh, man. Thankfully, on this one, I'm going to say, it turned up nothing. Okay. Well, yeah. that is good. Okay. Because that's just very gruesome. That would have been really gruesome. Yes. So on the morning of the 12th, investigators would review the key card activity again. At 10, 11 a.m., Annie would enter her lab in room G13. Suddenly, records would show a blast of activity with 11 separate swipes of Annie's keycard coming in and out of room G22 across the building. They shifted to focus from the lab and into G22. Hmm, yeah. So they would be perplexed to discover that G22 was a storage room containing boxes and like big tall metal carts and things like that. So nothing that would really make sense for Annie to be interested in. Right. So what's the deal with the activity in and out of the room on the 8th then? Hmm. So yeah. At the direction of Detective Ray and Salako, the group would conduct a thorough all-hands-and-all-senses-on-deck search of the room. He had them shut off all the lights and get down on the floor on their hands and knees. They then sort of scanned the room from the ground up to see if this sort of focused kind of search mm. might help them find anything that appeared to be out of place yeah, or really anything relevant to the investigation at all. Yeah. And bam, they found something really. Oh my gosh. Okay. A brown bead. I know that doesn't sound like much. Okay. Yeah. But they confirmed it later as being a match to the beads on the necklace that Annie had been wearing on the footage when she entered the building. Wow. Remember the brown necklace? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So they found a bead. Oh my goodness. Something that tiny. <laughs> yeah. So detectives knew that the discovery of the bead had likely meant that Annie had been in some kind of struggle. They continued processing the room, knocking on the walls and calling out Annie's name in case maybe she was alive and well, maybe being held captive somehow. Mm -hmm. They moved a cart that had been against the wall to continue checking out the walls when they made another discovery. There on the wall, low to the ground, was a fine spray of blood spatter. Oh, no. The building was immediately locked down, as it was apparent now that something awful had happened to Annie. Yeah. They continued going through the list of people who had also used key cards to access the building on September 8th, and eventually were able to narrow down the suspect list to three suspects. Two regular contractors that had been in and out of the building for the duration of the construction of the building and beyond. Hmm and a lab tech that worked in the Animal Research Center. The contractors were pretty much immediately ruled out. They cooperated with the interviews conducted by investigators, and both had stories that could rule out their involvement in the case. So now the focus was on the lab tech, a man named Raymond Clark III. Interestingly, mm. this is... <laughs> I like how you snort already. Yeah. Interestingly, this is the lab tech that had remembered seeing Annie and briefly talking with her on the morning that she went missing. Same guy. Yeah, okay. So they brought Raymond in for an interview. He was cooperative as well. He didn't seem nervous to speak with authorities, and he stuck to his earlier story. He had seen Annie, but their conversation was just a quick and polite ordeal, adding this time that when he had seen her, 
he was just coming back to the lab from his lunch and that she was leaving as he was getting there. That's a new detail. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. That's a little bit sketchy. She's leaving. but She never leaves. Mm-hmm. Okay. 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 Yeah. So he also included that he didn't know where she was or what might've happened to her. So this was a little odd because even with the building being evacuated for the fire alarm, there was no footage and no indication whatsoever that Annie had left the building. So they immediately zoomed in on Raymond Clark III. Yeah. So they started with looking into Raymond's key card activity. He entered the lab in room G13 at 10.40 a.m. on September 8th, and they were able to determine that he was the last person to gain access to G13 when Annie was in there. His card was then tracked accessing other rooms in the building, even after Annie's card was no longer active. Raymond can also be seen on multiple cameras around the campus after the fire alarm was pulled. He's seen crossing a street and entering a sort of park on campus Mm -hmm. where he sits down and puts his head in his hands, which doesn't look great. No, that's a little bit. Considering he's a suspect in a disappearance. So the information that they uncovered with his key card activity and with the footage of him walking around in distress was sort of enough for them to continue to zero in on him. They began digging into Raymond's past and set up surveillance on him to track what he was up to while they continued following up on all the leads that made sense at that point, including an almost inch by inch comb over of the research building. Hmm. They continued checking the walls and eventually focused on looking into the ceiling tiles. It was here that they discovered a bloody rubber glove and a bloody sock that was hidden in the tiles. Oh my gosh, no. Mm -hmm. So Sunday, (sighs) September 13th, 2009 came around. This was supposed to be Annie and Jonathan's wedding day, but she was still nowhere to be found. Yeah. State police continued with their investigation of the research lab that day. Detective Insolaco and his crew were searching the building when he entered into a bathroom and caught a scent that he described as being off. Hmm. But he knew it was definitely the smell of decomposition. Oh, no. They brought in cadaver dogs to aid in this part of the search. The smell seemed strongest near the ground, so they searched near the floor around the perimeter of the walls. There was a small silver panel that looked like it accessed like piping behind Mm -hmm. the toilet. He opened the door to the access panel and discovered a blood smear, as well as missing screws inside the door and a small area that was packed with yellow insulation material. They moved the insulation around, and it was there that they discovered Annie Lay. Oh, no. She was partially clothed with her feet closest to the door. It was around 5 p.m. on September 13th that her body was discovered, the exact time she was supposed to be walking down the aisle to marry Jonathan. Yeah, my heart's like pounding in my chest. I sobbed writing this. So, content warning, I'm about to describe the crime scene and then the findings of the medical examiner. These things are pretty graphic and definitely upsetting. Um, So if you don't want those details, there is also mention of sexual assault, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. So if you want to skip ahead, I totally understand. So when they looked more closely at her body, it was apparent that whoever had done this had taken virtually no care to dispose of her body in any way that could be called dignified. They had essentially stuffed her body upside down into this small, tight area headfirst, breaking her bones in the process. Oh my gosh. Just so brutal. The space between the inner and outer walls of the area was barely a couple of feet in width. 
so not big enough for a human body, even a small one like Annie's, to fit into. One unnamed person told the media that she was basically crushed. Oh my goodness. In the process of being hidden. I don't know if that's true. I really hope it's not, honestly. But either way, whoever did this did not care how gruesomely they handled her body. Right. Her body was taken to the medical examiner where it was determined that Annie had died from traumatic asphyxiation by neck compression. So she had been strangled to death. Oh my god. Her death being ruled now as a homicide. Yeah. Along with the strangulation, the medical examiner was able to determine that her jaw and collarbone were broken, most likely when she was still alive. Her bra had been pushed up, exposing her breasts. Her underwear had been pulled around her ankles. And there was semen on different parts of her body as well. Yeah, it makes me want to cry. Her clothing was sent off for analysis in the forensics lab. And while they waited for answers on that, police had to keep moving. Yeah. So following the discovery of Annie's body and the findings at the medical examiner's office, the investigation took the shift from being a missing persons case now to a homicide investigation. With a body and manner of death determined, the hunt was on to figure out who did this. They decided to bring in their only suspect at this point, Raymond Clark III, for a follow-up interview. He was once again cooperative and agreed to take a polygraph test this time, which he flunked. When he was told that he failed the polygraph test, he immediately lawyered up. Which never really looks great. I, I get it. That's your right. Express your right. But... That doesn't always look great. Right. He didn't ask, like, from what I could gather, he didn't ask, what questions did I fail? You know, that kind of thing. So, So when the results of the analysis of Annie's clothing came back, Raymond Clark's DNA was found on her clothing. So they have that, his key card activity, and more evidence that had been logged that they could sort of put against Raymond's DNA while they built their case against him. Mm Mm-hmm. On September 17th, 2009, Raymond Clark III would be arrested at a hotel in Cromwell, Connecticut, where he would then be charged with the murder of Annie Lay. He was booked into the McDougal Walker Correctional Facility, which was a maximum security prison while he awaited trial. His bail was set at $3 million. Ooh, yeah. Yes. He would make his first courtroom appearance on October 6, 2009, but didn't enter a plea at this point. Hmm. Proceedings would be delayed until January of the following year, since all of the evidence wasn't available at this time. He initially pled not guilty in his pretrial. Hearings kept getting delayed, and it took a year and a half after his arrest to finally get some answers. Wow. Yeah. So on March 17th, 2011, Raymond Clark III pled guilty to the murder and attempted sexual assault of Annie Lay. He entered his guilty plea in exchange for a lighter sentence. Mm. He was convicted of the murder and the attempted sexual assault. And on June 3rd, 2011, he was sentenced to 44 years in prison. He's set to be released in 2053 when he'll be 70 years old. Mm. Wow. Yeah. So at his sentencing, he read a statement where he apologized and, quote, appeared in scare quotes to be Mm. remorseful. But at no point in his pretrial, trial, or sentencing did he answer anyone's questions as to why he did this in the first place. To this day, his motive is unknown. Oh, I hate that so much. Hate it. There have been theories and different speculations from law enforcement, media, and so on, but there's no concrete motive. One of the most logical theories came from the New Haven police. 
they guessed that due to Annie's upcoming wedding and due to the fact that Raymond and Annie were probably pretty familiar with each other since the basement lab wasn't accessible to a ton of people, that perhaps maybe Raymond had feelings for Annie. So on the day of her murder, they guessed that maybe he approached her while she was alone in the lab and maybe he confessed feelings or demanded some form of like relationship with her. And that when Annie Mm. refused, he probably snapped, killing her and attempting to sexually assault her in the process. It's worth noting that Raymond was on surveillance footage, leaving the building during the time of the fire alarm. The fire alarm had been set off by these giant dishwashers that would release big amounts of steam from time to time, and those clouds of steam could trigger the fire alarm. They estimate that shortly after Raymond entered the lab at 10.40 a.m. that this exchange happened, ending in the tragic murder and disposal of Annie Lay. Wow. That's just a guess, though. I mean, that's their best estimation. So her body was brought to El Dorado Hills, California, where her funeral was held with over 500 people in attendance. The church where her funeral was held was full of weeping loved ones who sent her off with tears and her mother read a Vietnamese poem in her honor. Her fiance, Jonathan, was there also wearing his wedding ring as a symbol of his love to her. And Annie's mom even included Jonathan in her eulogy, telling him that he would always be a part of their family. They told stories and said prayers in English and Vietnamese, and they ended with a Vietnamese version of the song Amazing Grace. Wow. So as always, I want to end by talking about the victims in our stories as they were in life. So whenever I can find any information about them, I just want to share it and sort of leave everybody with a better way to remember them. Yeah. So at the time of her death, Annie was in her third year of studies toward her PhD in pharmacology, and she was set to graduate in 2013. On top of her many academic accomplishments, Annie's lively and outgoing personality made her so fun and so special to her loved ones. They remember Annie for her silliness, her boundless spirit, and love of life. She was insanely kind and loving, dedicating her life and harnessing her smarts to the pursuit of healing the sick. Her half-brother said that his love for her and his best memories of her were found in the little moments of life, when they were together making jokes or watching cartoons together. All in all, Annie is remembered by those who love her most, not by how she died, but in how she lived, intensely. Hmm. They described her as having intense passion, intense love, intense joy, and intense care for others. After her death, the Yale Corporation set up a special scholarship in Annie's honor that's awarded annually to a student in the biological and biomedical sciences program that Annie was part of at the time of her death. People that are awarded this scholarship must meet the qualifications that made Annie so special. They must be exemplary students, and they must have a greater care beyond the campus grounds that seeks to make the world a better place. So I know this was a heavy one. Good job if you made it all the way to the end. That's what I have for you this week. Wow. Yeah. I feel like this whole story, even though it ends really sadly and mm-hmm. has it, it, it enrages me to think of somebody being unwilling to mm-hmm. like just share why. I know. Because it, I'm assuming because it's just so absolutely ludicrous to do, to do anything like that. Mm -hmm. And they know it. Yeah. 
at the same time, like, I feel like you, you've said, said this earlier this week, just as, as we were talking about, like, you, you never tell me any, any, anything yeah. <laughs> about it. I leave you but in you, the dark. But you do say things like, I, this, this is going to be a hard one, but it's important. Mm-hmm. And that kind of, that's the kind of statement that you'll kind of leave me with sometimes. Mm-hmm. And I'm um, just, as you're t- telling me this story, I keep thinking about like, yeah, these kinds of stories are important because we want them to stop. Yeah. They're important because we like have no reason for them to exist at all. Right. And we need to know about it so that people can get that burden of like this, this needs to be worse for people who even consider this sort of a thing as a, as a viable option to the point where someone's saying, that they have no reason they're, they're unwilling to share any sort of a why should be an automatic, like, Oh yeah, you're going to be gone for a long, long time. I'm really surprised that his sentence was lighter. I know that he pled guilty to get the lighter sentence, but just with the, the fact that it seems so senseless. Yeah. And then the way that he treated her body after he had killed her is so extremely it's uh, trying to put the right words to it is difficult. I used the word senseless a few times because it really is just straight up senseless. Yeah. And it makes me sad that that's all he got that right. when he serves his time, I mean, they probably gave him time served for the time that he spent waiting for his trial. Mm. Um, I, I didn't look that up, but that's a pretty general process across the board probably got time served it doesn't say anything about um him having a a inability to be paroled or anything like that like he could get out early who knows so he's set to be released in in 2053 but could be sooner and it just feels really unfair because she was doing things she had so many things that she was working so hard towards and so many people that she loved and, and things that she was going to do for the world, you know? Yeah. And so, yeah, her story felt really important to tell. And even though it was heavy and very, very dark and super upsetting, I just feel like getting to know these people as, as people mm-hmm. and understanding just the, the gravity of certain decisions. Cause it sounds like if the estimation that the police made was correct, that it was an impulse yeah. He, he snapped was yeah. the term that they used. And it's like that, that snap was all it took to completely ruin his own life. Right. And ruin hers. Right. Destroy hers. And everybody around her will never be the same, you know? Right. So these stories, I feel like as much as they are terrible to tell are super important. Yeah. So that was my rambling for the day. Yeah. No, that's good. Well, for everybody who listened in, thank you so much for listening in on the unusual unsettling and unsavory story today. Um, I, I, I feel like for me, this story is incredibly unsavory, mm-hmm. um, for a whole host of reasons. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't know about you, but I assume you probably feel similarly to me. I do. I think that one tops the list this week. I feel like it does cover the whole range of all three mm. big ideas, but it's definitely so it just leaves you, feeling sick. Like it leaves you with a, 
Yeah. Yeah. Unsettled and unsavory, I think, are at the top of the list. It's a sad story. Very sad. Yeah. Um, And if you have an opinion on that, please feel free to leave a comment on social media. Let us know how you feel about this story. And you can do that um, on Instagram at this one is a doozy or on Facebook. This one's a doozy podcast. And we're also on TikTok at this one is a doozy as well. And also, if you would, please subscribe and leave a five-star review. This just helps other people find the podcast who are looking for true crime, in this case, true crime podcasts or uh, anything else that's mysterious, folklore, ghost stories, whatever it is Mm -hmm. that people like to listen to. And also, if you have any suggestions for stories, please make sure to send them to us via email. This one is a doozy at gmail.com. And also, if you have a personal story, we'd love to hear it. So go ahead and send that to us. I actually know somebody is going to send us a voice memo of a story uh, that yeah that we're probably going to end up uh, uh, transcribing to read um, because they were they just told me they feel like they can't write it on paper. They just have to tell they, it. They have to tell it, and I'm like, okay, that makes I, sense. I get that. I get that. That's exciting. You're yeah. just now telling me about this. I know. I know. I'm waiting to see. Wait and see how that, that uh, how that comes through. So. Yeah, that's fun. <laughs> Other than that, you have anything else for us, my love? That is it. That's it for this week. All right. Well, with that, we will see you next week for another doozy. Thank you. Bye. special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co.